National Archives podcast series, Medieval Queens in the National Archives, presented by Dr. Jessica Nelson. This event was recorded live on the 3rd of May 2012 at the National Archives, Kew. Okay, well first of all, can everybody hear me okay? okay I, will, I will rely on people at the back to, uh, to gesture if the microphone falls off or it goes quiet or anything like that. So, Thank you all for coming. Um, I'm going to be talking a little bit about the role of the Queen in medieval England. Um, medieval kings tend to loom relatively large in modern popular culture. Um, I'm sure we've all heard of William the Conqueror and all that, brave Richard the Lionheart, bad King John, murderous Richard III, chivalric Henry V, so on and so forth. But the queens that lived and worked alongside these kings are often less well-known. Um, and, you know, a lot of people might not be at all familiar with uh, Matilda of Flanders, Berengaria of Navarre, Isabel of Angoulême, Anne Neville or Catherine of Valois. Indeed, the fact that one Eleanor of Aquitaine was married to Henry II was deemed so obscure that it was the first million-pound question on who wants to be a millionaire, which is surprising, being as we even have a photograph of Eleanor of Aquitaine <laughs> and Henry II. Um, obviously, that's not Henry, uh, Eleanor of Aquitaine and Henry II, that's Peter O'Toole and Catherine Hepburn, but I would make the most of that slide because the rest of them are going to be of medieval documents. So this is the only attractive slide. Make the most of it while it's here. Anyway... The fact that the names of these women do not necessarily uh, easily trip off the tongue doesn't mean that they didn't have a prominent role in their, uh, in their own lifetimes in both public and political life. So it shouldn't be a surprise that many of these women have left their marks on the records that survive here at the National Archives. It's not, of course, possible to provide a detailed breakdown of every appearance of every queen in the records held here. That would be the work of several lifetimes and, frankly, it would be extremely dull. So what I'm going to do today is look at some of the roles and responsibilities most typically um, fulfilled by medieval queens and the sorts of evidence that we have here for them. The areas I'm going to focus on are the role of the queen as intercessor and patron, her role in governance and her role as wife and mother. Of course, in the medieval period, dynasty and politics were inseparable. So all these areas are closely interrelated and it certainly wouldn't do to emphasise the boundaries uh, between them too strongly. I'm going to be talking about Queen's Consort, uh, that is the wives of reigning kings and also the mothers of reigning kings, um, rather than talking about Queen's Regnant, as in women who ruled in their own right, like our own Queen today. Although there was no law specifically forbidding from ru uh, a woman from ruling in her own right, this wasn't eventuality that occurred in England during the medieval period. The closest that we came is the Empress Matilda in the 12th century, who was the only surviving legitimate child of Henry I, and who for many years posed a real threat to the kingship of her cousin, King Stephen. But that would be the subject of a whole different talk, so as I say, I'm just going to be talking, um, I'm not going to be talking about Queen's Regnant today. Um, during the medieval period, the archetypal queen was no less a figure than the Virgin Mary, the Queen of Heaven, and in many ways, secular queens would seek to emulate her. This meant that one of the most traditional and accepted roles of the medieval queen was that of intercessor, mirroring Mary's intercessory role in the Catholic faith. Intercession with her husband gave the Queen consort influence whilst still attributing to both King and Queen traditionally gendered roles. The King was in charge, but the Queen could use her unique position as his consort to influence him in favour of individuals or groups of people, in the same way that uh, the Virgin Mary was believed to play an intercessory role with um, Christ, the King of Heaven. Chronicle evidence from the medieval period has abundant narrative retellings of Queens interceding with their husbands, the National Archives, being the archive of government, does not have these sorts of chronicles in its holdings. However, the chronicle evidence is borne out by the administrative records that are held here in vast quantities. Um, the patent rolls, which are rolls of open letters, letters patent, expressing the sovereign's will, are a tremendously rich source of successful episodes of intercession, 
and uh, for the medieval period they've generally been calendared, so they're very accessible and easy to use here. Other particularly rich series for intercession are the Royal Letters in SC1 and the Petitions in SC8, and both of these series are now name searchable, and also you can download the SC8 petitions online as well. So if you're interested in this field, it's, uh, it's something that's very easy to access the records. Uh, intercession could take the form of requesting favours for people or institutions who were personally known to the Queen. And this sort of patronage can be clearly seen within our records. For example, a letter survives, written to Edward I by his second wife, Margaret of France, in which she asks him to present a clerk, Ralph de Sodbury, to a vacant church in Frompton. Uh, Ralph is the clerk of Edward's daughter, Mary, and the Queen is, acting, um, is working together with her stepdaughter, whose letter on the subject also survives. At the top there, we've got the letter from uh, Edward's daughter, and at the bottom, the letter from uh, Margaret of France to Edward, asking for Ralph to, um, to be presented to this church. Their request was successful, um, and the presentment of uh, Ralph to the church can actually be seen on Edward I's patent rolls as well, so it's quite a good example of being able to trace an episode of intercession through different series in our holdings. Intercession might also be in response to a petition that had been sent to the Queen by someone who was less well-known to her. So somebody would essentially write to the Queen and say, please do this on my behalf, and she may or may not um, take that forward. So, for example, the document survives again in the SC1 series, whereby widow petitions Isabella of France to be allowed her lands in various counties. And there is then a corresponding document whereby Isabella's husband, Edward II, orders his officials in those counties to look into the matter. Now, for more alert audience members, might be slightly surprised that um, this successful episode of intercession, given that the marriage of Edward II and Isabella of France infamously ended in revolt and murder. But in its early years, their relationship was largely amicable, and Isabella was in fact very supportive of her husband. She held extensive dower lands, and he frequently responded to her intercession, as shown in our sources. It was only later in the reign, after they'd produced several children, that the relationship between king and queen broke down so spectacularly, and in fact, you can actually trace um, the decline in their relationship through the episodes of intercession in our records, because they're very frequent up until a certain point, and then they very much drop off. There were also occasions where the Queen might intercede in order to temper the King's justice towards people who had been punished harshly. And this was a real sort of set piece of royal authority, placing the Queen very firmly again in the role of the merciful Marian intercessor, tempering the justice of her sort of regal husband. So, for example, in the patent role for uh, 1328... The second year of the reign of Edward III, there's a pardon at the request of Philippa of Hainault to Peter de Watford, a former bailiff of a forest, um, who had um, given some men a doe that he had found killed. On the same roll, and that's the one that we've got here, there's a pardon granted at the Queen's request to Agnes de Penrith, who had been sent to Marshalsea Prison to await judgment for robbery, although she was under 11 years old. And uh, the... which you probably can't tell, um, although I promise you it is on there, there is... Um, there's a reference on there that basically says, because in consideration for the youth of the child, the Queen has asked that, she, that the sentence against her be, um, be commuted. Um, so while intercession is patronage by influence, medieval queens also exercised patronage directly by making grants and gifts themselves. Ella of Provence, the wife of Henry III, for example, was an active patron of Tarrant Abbey in Dorset, granting it properties, giving it money and protecting it in legal disputes. Evidence for this is preserved in various different series here at the National Archives, for example, in enrolled charters, in enrolled letters close, liberate rolls, um, and in the Exchequer records. I did try and look for some attractive examples to show you, but they were all really, really poor and stained and illegible. So I thought, actually, I would spare you that particular slide. Um, so in this, in this sort of um, 
religious patronage, Ella of Provence was very typical, even though she was probably no more than conventionally pious. But there was an expectation that the Queen would make these sorts of grants to religious um, institutions. There's no doubt that there was actual religious sentiment between these sorts, behind these sorts of gifts. Um, people in the medieval period were undoubtedly more religious um, than generally is, um, is the case today. But patronage was also an expected and an accepted facet of queenship, an assertion of the prestige of the queen. These acts also exemplify the responsibility of a medieval queen for salvation, remembrance and success of the royal family. So patronage, um, religious patronage was like a reciprocal arrangement where the queen would make gifts to a religious institution, but in return she would expect that her and her family would be remembered in its prayers. And as I say, being a much more religious society, there was a belief that you know, being remembered in the prayers of a religious institution would generally have an effect um, on, um, on the success of your family. Patronage did not, of course, always have to be in favour of religious institutions, and favoured individuals or institutions could also benefit, including, for example, royal officials, scholars and universities, poets, musicians, and so on. This patronage can go a, a little way to giving us an insight into the mindset and interests of particular queens in a way which is quite unusual. It's, you know, we, it's very rare to really be able to get beneath the skin of these people. So Margaret of Anjou, for example, the Queen of Henry VI, showed an interest in learning and she founded Queen's College Cambridge. Queen's College Oxford was founded by a chaplain of Philippa of Hainaut, the Queen of Edward III, but he founded it in, the, uh, in Philippa of Hainaut's honour, hence its name. Um, Philippa herself secured a grant of a hospital in Southampton with the surrounding land for the college and the petition is shown here in the series SC8 um, and in fact this, um, this petition in, by which uh, she asked for this land to be granted this, uh, this hospital and the land to be granted to the college was of ongoing significance to Queen's College and in fact up, right up until the modern day because of the development of Southampton and the dockyards was an extremely valuable thing for, this, uh, for, the, for the college to possess. So even though this was undertaken hundreds of years ago, it's still having an effect now. It must be remembered that even when the Queen is making grants of her own land and wealth, the fact was that medieval queens were generally dependent on their husbands for their wealth. Aristocratic women in this period, including queens, were generally provided for in two ways. A bride would be assigned a maritagium, which was land, or on occasion valuables or cash, provided by the man giving her in marriage, usually her father, but sometimes a brother or an uncle. Although intended to support the bride, this uh, land or valuables passed into the husband's control and was frequently subject of hard bargaining before the marriage. If the woman outlived her husband, she retained her maritagium and indeed took it with her to any later marriage. A bride was also provided for by her husband, with a dower assigned at the time of marriage, this, uh, usually, um, this was usually lands in the husband's estates, which were frequently, although not invariably, specified. But the woman had no right to control these during her husband's lifetime, although the husband was not supposed to dispose of any part of his wife's dower without her permission. And some men allowed their wives to control part or all of their dowers, but a woman only gained the right to exercise control of it after her husband's death. And again, in, throughout the records at the National Archives, there are instances of real bargaining going on where between uh, the prospective husband and the father of the prospective bride, where they're really kind of bargaining about what's going to be in these bundles of land and wealth and how well the bride is going to be provided for. Uh, particular lands were traditionally earmarked um, as the dower of Queen's consort in England, although in the event they might actually still be held by the Queen Mother, in which case the new Queen consort would be assigned alternative lands until such time as the Queen Mother died. It was all very pragmatic. 
Um, usually, English Queen's consort would be allowed at least some control over their dower lands during their lifetimes, and that's what enabled them to pay the revenues for their households and staff, exercise patronage, buy gifts, and so on. Although even in this case, even in these cases, the king was often obliged to confirm his wife's grant, either because it, it didn't necessarily need confirmation, but often the institution in question would want it to be confirmed by the king, because then they would feel they had a stronger hold on it. For example, here... Um, in a record from the early 12th century, which, and this is actually one of the earliest mentions of a queen in our records, Henry I is confirming the grant of his wife, Queen Matilda, to Holy Trinity, London. And it's a grant of the rents of the city of Exeter, which was uh, in her dower. And Henry is basically directing his officials um, to make sure that these rents are paid. And actually, this, I think this is a rare example where you can actually see what's going on. You see the Matilda Regina Uxor Mayor, uh, Matilda the Queen, my wife. Um, so, yes, yeah, so that's one of the earliest mentions. It's also just got there for interest's sake. That's a fragment of the Great Seal of Henry I, where you can possibly just make out the, uh, the orb that he's holding. Dower lands could also be supplemented with other lands and revenues, often including the Queen's gold, which was a tax levied on some fines paid to the King. But these dower lands and revenues could also be withheld altogether. Uh, King John, for example, promised Isabella of Angoulême vast dower lands in England and France. But during his lifetime, she appears to have had no control over them, and instead she was obliged to live on handouts from her husband. A queen could also be deprived of her income at some stage during her marriage if it was deemed that she had in some way misbehaved. Um, Isabella of France, the wife of Edward II, who, as I said, there was a a fairly serious marital breakdown. Well, murder. I mean, you can't really get much more serious than that. Um, But anyway, while, while both parties were still alive, She had initially been allowed considerable control over her dower lands in the first years of her marriage, but as their relationship broke down, Edward took Isabella's lands back into his own hands, and she was instead dependent on an allowance from him. While this allowance was quite substantial, there are still records of her attempting to uh, obtain money from elsewhere, and of Edward attempting to stop her. And again, from SC1, this is a letter um, to Edward from the Bishop of Exeter, dating from 1326, in which the bishop explains that he has left the queen in Paris and given her no money, as instructed by the king, but that she's obtained some money anyway by borrowing it from Italian bankers. Clearly, then, the resources of a medieval queen were far from fixed. What land she held and the revenue she received varied from queen to queen, and indeed over the course of her lifetime. So the records here at the National Archives are very rich in information about the resources of the queen, what she spent her money on, providing further clues about how she lived, the makeup of her household, her companions, her family members, her officials and the servants that surrounded her. These sorts of clues are scattered in various enrolled chancery and exchequer series, um, such as this, which is an exchequer roll recording the property of uh, three queens, Philippa of Hainaut, Anne of Bohemia and Joan of Navarre, who were ex- respectively the wives of Edward III, Richard II and Henry IV. Unfortunately, as I say, this is, a set, this is quite a miscellaneous um, document. We certainly don't have anything that extensive for every queen. But, you know, you can really kind of use it to get clues, and there are clues spread out throughout the series. Um, and just in case you don't believe me that that's what that is, just at the ends of it, you can see the clerks have just noted on the different uh, rotulates the names of the queens who they are uh, concerned with. So those are the pages for, uh, for um, Philippa. Eleanor of Castile, the wife of Edward I, stands out as a queen consort who took a keen interest in her own finances. She expanded her estates considerably by purchase and also by securing the debts owed to Jewish moneylenders, and she was quite unforgiving in her treatment of tenants. Indeed, the complaints of her tenants about their harsh treatment led to legal cases, and this opens up another archival window on medieval queenship, being able to use some of the legal records we have here. 
Uh, proceedings against her officials are preserved in a number of plea rolls in our record series Just One, while this record, KB138-2, is a commission to an official to hear the complaints of the men of Cookham against Queen Eleanor's bailiff. Eleanor used her wealth wisely. She was a generous patron and she didn't live an extravagant lifestyle. But nonetheless, economic resourcefulness of this sort was unexpected and unfamiliar in a queen, and her unforgiving treatment of her tenants was very much at odds with the traditional role of a queen as a merciful counterpoint to her husband. And there's no doubt that this contributed to Eleanor's unpopularity during her lifetime. And there's a real paradox here that queens could be unpopular for spending too much money and relying and, and having to be given extra lands by their husband. But the moment they try and take a bit of kind of financial initiative and expand their own resources, they could become equally unpopular. The Queen's very dependence on maintaining the King's favour for her livelihood meant that while the matches themselves between, King, Queens, between Kings and Queens were almost invariably politically motivated, the King and Queen consort often had a very close bond. Obviously, just because these couples did not marry for love doesn't mean that their married lives were miserable. For example, the would-be assassin of Henry III was thwarted because when he broke into the King's bedchamber, he found it empty because Henry was in bed with his wife in her bedchamber so where uh, he found an empty room. Richard II and Anne of Bohemia were very rarely apart, and when she died, Richard raised a fine, um, a fine double tomb for her in Westminster Abbey, depicting him and the Queen holding hands. Uh, and that's them, as they survive to this day. Disappointingly, I think their hands have now fallen off, so you can't <laughs> see the fact that they're holding hands anymore, which is a bit of a shame. Um, no, not to worry, we know that they did in the past. Edward I famously erected crosses marking each overnight stopping point of the procession of his queen's body after she died, bringing it back to London. And uh, three of those Eleanor crosses still stand today. Uh, and that's one of them. Uh, that's the one in Geddingston. And on the other side, that's um, Eleanor of Castile's tomb, which I think is now in the Victoria and Albert Museum. Um, even the crosses that don't survive survive within the records here at the National Archives, uh, primarily in our series E101, which is an account series. There can be no doubt, then, that many kings turned to their wives as sources of advice and wisdom during their reigns, and there's also evidence of this going a step further, and the queen taking a role in governance when the king was, ab when the king was absent. Matilda of Boulogne, for example, the queen consort of King Stephen, rallied troops, raised armies, and besieged castles in support of her husband during the civil war of the 12th century. Eleanor of Aquitaine, queen consort of Henry II, was certainly active in English government, particularly during the king's absences abroad, overseeing the, his vast empire. She's regularly seen intervening in legal disputes, witnessing royal charters and issuing writs. In the following century, Henry III entrusted his wife, Eleanor of Provence, with the regency of England in 1253 while he was abroad, attempting to achieve peace in Gascony. And the orders relating to this regency are preserved in the patent rolls. Uh, and again, it's a fairly unassuming document, but, um, but you'll have to take my word for the fact that it does basically say, while I'm abroad in Gascony, my wife, uh, Eleanor the Queen, is to have control over all my lands and territories. And this was a real, you know, this was something really unusual. Henry had previously prepared a will which stated that in the event of his death, Eleanor was to have custody of all their children, including his heir and of all his territories. And then during the 10-month period of Eleanor's regency, while Henry was in Gascony, she really, gen you know, she genuinely exercised authority. It wasn't a period of unrestricted female power. She worked closely with um, the king's brother, Richard of Cornwall, and also with a specially constituted council. But nonetheless, she was much more than merely a figurehead, and this shows the real possibility of queenly action in the medieval period. 
Two centuries later, Margaret of Anjou also took on an active political role during the mental breakdown of her husband, Henry VI. This was not because, and in this case, you know, Henry has, um, they're all called Henry and Eleanor, I'm sorry about that. Um, in this case, Henry has sort of formally constituted a kind of uh, a quasi-regal status for his wife. In the case of Margaret of Anjou and Henry VI, Margaret essentially um, gained political power during his mental breakdown by sheer force of character. Um, so there was, there was no sort of formal constitution of it. Um, in between times, however, the evidence for queens governing on behalf of their kings is much patchier, and it has been argued that from the mid-12th century, the centralisation of government marginalised the p- political role of the queen. Because the political role of the queen was very much dependent on personal influence and physical access to the king, the centralisation of government that kind of moved things away from the royal household uh, could arguably have uh, led to a, a lessening of her influence. And this is certainly a thesis to be taken seriously, but it's also important to remember that a role in governments had never been an automatic queenly right, and it had always been dependent on circumstances. So Matilda of Boulogne probably wouldn't have been raising armies unless her husband had been engaged in a civil war. Eleanor of Aquitaine's role might have been more restricted if Henry II's empire had been smaller. Eleanor Provence's regency likewise was needed because of her husband's absence in Gascony, while Margaret of Anjou might have been less involved in government if Henry VI had been more capable. Um, Certainly, the loss of Normandy by King John ensured that for generations to follow, the English king was freer to concentrate personally on governing a more compact kingdom, which reduced the need for a co-ruler. But while queens might have had limited scope for regency, they could play other political roles. And in an age where, as I've mentioned, politics and dynasty were inseparable, they could be particularly valuable in fostering beneficial relations between the king and their fathers or their natal families. The very fact of the marriage between the king and the queen consort often made the person of the queen a living, breathing symbol of an alliance, but her role could also go much further. So Joan of Navarre, uh, the queen of Henry IV, was instrumental in arranging truces between England and Brittany, and Brittany at the time was ruled by her son by her first marriage, John. Again here, the level of the queen's political activity is governed both by circumstances and personality, so in this case, John play, had played an, uh, Joan rather, had played an active role in Breton political affairs during her first marriage, and she was a confident adult marrying a king who was only a few years her senior, so it was quite a match of equals. The couple had met several times before Henry became king, which is quite unusual, um, and he presumably knew what he was getting when he married Joan, so they appear to have been a, a well-matched and a close couple. There can certainly be no doubt that a lot of these relationships between the king and queen consort were true partnerships. Um, but despite that, um, we shouldn't be under any illusion that they were made on the basis of love. Until very recently, aristocratic marriage was all to do with land, alliance and power. And this is certainly no more true than in the uh, marriages of the kings of England. This can be seen immediately after the conquest, and indeed before it, um, with the marriage of Henry I to Matilda. Uh, Matilda was a member of the Anglo-Saxon royal house through her mother, Margaret, who was the granddaughter of Edmund Ironside. Matilda's brother... Was, Edward, was Edgar Etheling, a legitimate, or rather Margaret's brother was Edgar Etheling, a legitimate claimant to the English crown. And Matilda's father's line was hardly less illustrious. He was the son of Malcolm III Cangwall, king of, king of Scots, who was the eldest son of King Duncan, who, as you may remember, gets killed in Macbeth. So the Scottish match um, between Henry I and Matilda secured in one marriage peace with Scotland, the neutralisation of any potential threat from Edgar Etheling, and the transmission of the pre-conquest royal bloodline to Henry and Matilda's children. Relations with Scotland were good throughout Henry I's reign, 
and Matilda's brother, Earl David, who later became David I of Scotland, was one of his brother-in-law's most powerful and trusted advisers. In fact, Henry I and his wife were initially mocked for their Angloness by the Norman aristocracy, Matilda because she was um, a child of the, of the old English line, and Henry because he was the only one of William the Conqueror's sons actually to be born in England, which to the kind of slightly pompous Norman nobles was hilarious. Um, however, Henry knew how to handle his leading men, and this was helped by his almost endless supply of illegitimate daughters who made wives for many of them. Um, and there's certainly no evidence of ongoing resentment against Matilda or against her Scottish kin. The same cannot be said of all such royal marriages, for the desire to make an alliance with a powerful royal family could easily engender resentments at home. Eleanor of Provence's Savoyard uncles were hugely valuable allies for her husband, Henry III, but they could easily be portrayed as overbearing and interfering foreigners, especially as Eleanor dil diligently arranged marriages between the younger members of her Savoyard king and the ch uh, kin rather, and the children of an assortment of English nobles. Eleanor's position, very overt position, as the English head of a Savoyard faction gave her political clout, but it also made her a very easy target for the anti-alien feeling that would contribute to the turmoil in the later years of Henry III's reign. But neither was suspicion reserved only for foreign queens and their kin. Indeed, the jealousy and resentment that could accompany a king making an English match could far outweigh that felt towards a foreign consort. Edward IV's secret marriage to the English woman Elizabeth Woodville in 1464 or thereabouts caused a political storm, partly because the Earl of Warwick was at the same time trying to arrange a politically expedient marriage between the king and a French princess. And this storm gradually became a hurricane over the years as Edward began deploying Elizabeth Woodville's male relatives in important polit political positions while arranging marriages for a lot of her female relatives among the aristocracy. The Earl of Warwick was already married and thus in no position to benefit from a marriage to one of the new Queen's sisters, and in fact it also disadvantaged the chances of his daughter, um, who basically was less able to make a good match because all the good matches were going to the Queen's sisters. Um, Warwick would finally rebel and that would reignite the Wars of the Roses, and during which time Elizabeth Woodville's sons uh, would die as the princes in the tower. Now personally I find the machinations of the Wars of the Roses unbelievably complicated, um, but you might be interested to know that although her sons died in the tower, her daughter, Elizabeth of York, would marry Henry Tudor, and Elizabeth Woodville would live to see her daughter be crowned queen. And again, the marriage of Elizabeth and Henry Tudor, although based entirely upon political expediency, does seem to have been quite a happy one. Elizabeth Woodville was the victim of the medieval conundrum that was suspicious of a queen consort having too much influence over the king, while at the same time requiring that they had a close physical bond because at the end of the day, the single most important function for any queen consort was the production of a male heir. The need for an heir, and if possible, at least one spare, plus some daughters to be deployed in marital alliances, meant that many medieval queens spent a lot of their time pregnant. Eleanor of Castile, for example, had 16 children, though only six of them, five daughters, and her youngest son lived into adulthood. Childbirth was, of course, a very dangerous time for both mother and child, and our records clearly show the tensions felt during royal pregnancies and the rejoicing that followed the safe delivery of mother and baby. Eleanor Provence, Queen Consort of Henry III, was fortunate enough to produce a healthy boy child early in her marriage, in 1239. Henry was delighted, and his Liberate roles record a series of payments for celebration and thanksgiving at the birth, um, to, uh, to celebrate the birth and also to reward his wife for having a boy child and to reward the women who helped her during her pregnancy. 
Um, and Henry's Liberate rolls are an excellent source of uh, information about royal expenditure, particularly for the reign of Henry III. So in this example, uh, Henry III is giving to Hugh Gifford 100 shillings for the use of his wife Sybil out of a total of £10 that Sybil will now receive annually because of the care that Sybil showed towards the Queen during the Queen's confinement. So while the production of children cemented the place of the Queen consort within her marital family, it also provided opportunities for her to play a political role. As I've said, government in this period couldn't be separated from family, and influencing and advising her children could give the Queen considerable political leverage. Although medieval nuclear family life was a very long way from the modern norm, the records nonetheless show that medieval queens spent a good deal of time with their children, and there is no reason to believe that they didn't love them, just as children today are loved, even if this love lacked today's sentimentality. Medieval queens were certainly active in arranging the futures of their children, for example by brokering marriages or by placing them in religious houses. Eleanor of Aquitaine took the support of her children a step further, joining the revolt of her sons against their father, Henry II. Her motivation is not wholly clear, and she may have regretted her actions, for while Henry II swiftly forgave his sons, he kept his wife in prison for a decade and no longer allowed her to play a significant role in government. This is not terribly surprising, really. Headstrong sons were a feature of medieval life, and indeed Henry had himself been a headstrong son. Their youthful exuberance could be forgiven by their fathers. Wives, on the other hand, were supposed to be submissive. They're supposed to submit to their husbands, and the king, above all, needed to be able to trust his wife. So Eleanor's betrayal and humiliating rebellion could not be forgiven in the same way that his son's rebellion could. I should make it clear that Eleanor's imprisonment was not exactly arduous, uh, and there are certainly payments in records at the National Archives showing that she was living in relative comfort throughout the period. Nonetheless, it wasn't until the succession of her son Richard that Eleanor was really able to show her political skills and abilities. And during Richard's reign, uh, that's Richard I, she attended councils, undertook diplomatic missions, arranged crucial marriage alliances, suppressed the rebellion of another of her sons, John, and helped raise Richard's ransom. Which isn't bad at all, I think, for a woman in her late 60s and early 70s. Funnily enough, however, despite their differences, Eleanor and Henry II would be laid to rest alongside one another in the abbey at Fontvaux, where Eleanor in her later years um, had retired as a nun, and that is in fact Eleanor of Aquitaine and Henry II, or at least their two effigies, not quite as attractive as Catherine Hepburn and uh, Peter O'Toole, but still. Eleanor of Aquitaine's energetic support of her son Richard stands out, but nonetheless it wasn't unusual for a queen mother to retain a voice during the reign of her son. Uh, so, for example, a quick search of our record series SC1 reveals well over 100 letters from Eleanor Provence, either to her son Edward I or to his officials. Many of these are straightforward examples of intercession, uh, where she's basically making a request on somebody's behalf, but plenty actually discuss business, uh, such as the top example here, where she's writing to her son to express her disapproval of a proposed marriage uh, between the son of the King of Sicily and the daughter of the King of Alamein, and uh, in the bottom example, which I think perhaps should be SC1 stroke 7 stroke 12, but I'm not entirely sure. Um, and in, but in the bottom example, where she's writing to royal officials about the business of Scotland um, as it pertained to her daughter, uh, Margaret, who at the time was the Scottish Queen Consort. And, you know, as I say, there's well over 100 letters just in this collection SC1 of um, where Eleanor Provence is writing to her son. And SC1 is an artificial collection and by no means comprehensive, so I have no doubt that there were hundreds more letters like it. Um, so while I'm sure he was grateful for her advice at times, one wonders if 
He also perhaps couldn't wait for her to retire to a nunnery on some occasions. Um, perhaps surprisingly, though, um, during this period, there was only a very limited role in governments to be played by the mothers of those kings who, succeed, who succeeded as infants. King John's second wife, Isabella of Angoulême, was sidelined during the reign of her husband. Um, and after his death, she was not given a place on her son Henry III's minority council. Perhaps feeling that she only had a limited stake in England and English government, she decided to return to France. However, because her husband, John, had now died, she, was, she now stood to gain control over her vast dower lands. Um, plus, she was the mother of a king, so Isabella became a very valuable matrimonial prize. She made the most of this, and in 1220, she married the hugely powerful Count of La Marche, who de Lusignan, whose father she had actually repudiated in order to marry John, which is a brilliant example of a great little medieval kind of machinations where everyone's supposed to be marrying somebody and then they end up marrying somebody else and then they go back to the first choice later on. One of the first moves of these lovely newlyweds was to detain Henry's sister Joan, so um, Isabella's own daughter, as a hostage for her dower. This was particularly troublesome as Joan had been promised as wife to Alexander II of Scotland. So Henry III's minority council have promised her as a wife to Alexander II of Scotland to make a marital alliance, but they now no longer have her because she's been taken hostage by her mother and stepfather. Um, This was a serious headache for the minority government, who eventually had to ask the Pope to intervene. Um, The political machinations of Hugh and Isabella continued, and they caused Henry considerable trouble in the long term. But he was something of a family man, and and after Isabella died, he paid out large sums for her commemoration and personally oversaw the arrangements for her burial. And um, uh, there there, there are lots of entries on his Liberate roles um, uh, noting these, uh, these commemorations. For example, on this one is an order to find a chaplain to celebrate the divine service daily in the Queen's Chapel in the Castle of Marlborough for the soul of Isabella. And there are also entries um, which record his orders to feed all the poor clerks of the universities of Oxford and Cambridge and all the friars preacher and minor there for the soul of Isabella. The the poor clerks of the universities in Oxford and Cambridge often did quite well out of the deaths of royal parents um, and were often sort of fed um, in order to commemorate their souls. 200 years later, Catherine of Valois, the mother of Henry VI, had custody of her son during his infancy and frequently accompanied him on ceremony occasions, including cradling him when he attended the uh, 1323 Parliament um, as a very small child indeed. But she did not have a formal role during his long minority, and indeed after her slightly scandalous marriage, uh, second marriage to Owen Tudor, the relationship between mother and son seems to have cooled. I cannot, of course, pass by without the most infamous Queen Mother, who was, of course, Isabella, the Queen Consort of Edward II and mother of Edward III. As I've already mentioned, the early years of um, Edward and Isabella's marriage was practically successful, if not personally particularly affectionate, but the later years were radically different. Increasingly sidelined by her husband, Isabella rebelled, supported by a large number of disaffected English nobles, including her lover, Roger Mortimer. This led to King Edward II's deposition and later murder, and thereafter Isabella and Mortimer ruled together until their arrest by her son, Edward III, in 1330. But while Mortimer was executed, Isabella, after a brief spell under guard, was allowed to live freely, with all the privileges and deference due to her as Queen Dowager, and with all her rightful lands and revenues restored. The actions of uh, Henry III and Edward III, in seeming to forgive their somewhat turbulent mothers, might simply be taken as evidence for filial affection or even their forgiving natures, 
Well, I'm not sure anyone ever considered Edward III forgiving in any other circumstances. But I do think there's more to it than that. I think there was an expectation throughout this period that the Queen Dowager would be accorded a certain status and to overturn or ignore that status was simply not appropriate, even when she really pushed the boundaries. And in fact, the only widowed queen, I think, whose rights were utterly flouted was Berengaria of Navarre, the widowed wife of Richard I, and her rights were completely ignored during the reign of Richard's brother, King John. However, given King John's outrageous record of his treatment of his nobles in general, I don't think this is an isolated example, and perhaps we shouldn't consider it surprising. As a small aside, Berengaria may be the only queen consort of England never to have actually been to England, the evidence isn't completely conclusive. She may have visited England after Richard I's death, but she certainly never visited while she was Queen Consort, though in fairness Richard I wasn't here very much himself. The match between the pair had been promoted by Richard's mother, Eleanor of Aquitaine, but although Richard deferred to his mother in many things, he more or less ignored Berengaria for the duration of their marriage. After Richard's death, King John clearly had no intention of releasing her extensive dower lands and revenues, but she actually proved very tenacious in pursuit of her rights, she continued to seek justice from John and then from his son Henry III's minority government and eventually she did receive payments. And this is a letter from her in which she's listing the things that she was owed which, uh, which King John had agreed to during his lifetime. She refers to him in the bottom line there as, um, as uh, John of good memory, formerly King of England. So um, I think she's being perhaps a little flattering to John there. Uh, in, uh, as I say, in trying to get what she, was, what she was owed. Berengaria had little reason to visit England. Her husband was barely ever here, and their failure to produce an heir together meant that she simply had nothing invested in the kingdom where she had been queen. This underlies, again, the central importance of having a child to ensuring that the queen was properly integrated into her husband's royal family and the political life of the country where he was king. And this is very clearly illustrated with an example from over the border in Scotland, the Queen of Alexander II of Scotland was an English princess, Joan, the daughter of King John and the sister of Henry III. We've already met her being taken hostage by her mother and stepfather a few years earlier. As a result of her ties to England, we have a large number of records relating to her. When the marriage took place in 1221, it was considered an excellent match. Joan and Alexander were both young, but they were similar in age, and everyone, including them, must have looked forward to a long and successful marriage. Joan appears to have been an active queen consort and she provided a vital link between, um, between the kings in the neighbouring kingdoms, her husband Alexander II and her brother Henry III. In this letter, for example, which is what in archival terms we call stained, uh, she provides information about the revolt of an earl in Ireland and assures her brother Henry that the earl will receive no support from her husband Alexander II. So the match was initially very successful, um, but as the years went by, Joan's childlessness must have become a more and more pressing issue. In the 1230s, Henry granted his sister substantial lands in uh, Driffield and Fenstanton in England, both of which are convenient staging posts on the journey from Scotland to London, which suggests, I think, that she may have been planning to spend more time in her native land. In the end, Joan died in England, and it's very striking indeed that in her will she asks to be buried at Tarrant Abbey in Dorset, providing it with substantial bequests made possible by her brother's grants to her. And uh, you may also remember that Tarrant Abbey was, um, was uh, a favoured institution of Ella of Provence, Joan's sister-in-law, so it already had these sorts of queenly connections. And there's an entry on um, Henry's close roles 
uh, here, where he's ordering a local sheriff to carry out some of Joan's bequests to Tarrant. And the close rolls as well are a very good source um, for medieval queenship. They um, record the closed letters conveying orders and instructions from the sovereign. So they're they're great for finding out what's going on on a day-to-day basis. So from Joan's will, it's possible to infer uh, quite a lot about her self-image, which is something quite unusual in the medieval period, when I think people um, certainly wrote about themselves less and possibly lacked the chronic introspection that we now have. Joan was the Queen of Scotland, not the Queen of England, but the fact she wanted to be buried in Dorset speaks volumes, I think, about where she felt she belonged. Although she'd lived in Scotland for her entire adult life, she had essentially failed as a queen. It's also notable that Henry III, Joan's brother, made regular gifts to Tarrant Abbey in Joan's memory, all of which are neatly recorded in his Liberate roles, where you can have a look at them. For example, in March 1238, he spent over £20 on 26 silk cloths, some woven with gold, as offerings for her soul at cathedral churches and abbeys, and ordered a marble tomb to cover her body at Tarrant to be made at nearby Salisbury. And some years later, he would um, order another tomb with a tomb effigy of his sister to be um, erected over her, over her grave. Now, I've not found any records of such a gift from Joan's husband, Alexander II of Scotland, although in fairness to Alexander, the relative scarcity of possible sources does mean that we can't be terribly definite about this. Nonetheless, having been buried in England, there was no convenient focus for Joan's commemoration in Scotland. And two contemporary Scottish chronicles record the death of Joan, and while not unsympathetic to her, they both note the fact that she had no children. Indeed, the guest Renalia states that Alexander II was forced to marry again because he had neither sons nor daughters from his queen. One must face, then, the slightly uncomfortable possibility that Joan's death was something of a relief for a king who needed an heir. To sum up, then, Queen's consort may or may not have exercised patronage, they may or may not have interceded with their husbands, they may or may not have held land or acted as as regents or advisers. These roles could all be adopted and put aside, depending on the circumstances and the needs and personalities of both king and queen. The production of children, on the other hand, was not negotiable. Any medieval queen consort who was barren would ultimately be judged a failure. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.